Welcome to Monkey Off My Backlog, the podcast where we exorcise our pop culture demons by tackling our media to-do lists one week at a time. I'm your host, Tessa, and with me are my co-hosts, Andy. Hello. And Dr. Sam. Hello. Joining us this week is Melissa from the Wild Pretty Things podcast. Hey, Melissa, thanks for joining us. Hello. Thank you guys for having me. I'm so excited both to um, finally talk to you all since I've heard your voices, which is always exciting. And because I got to watch a movie that I spent my whole entire life never having seen. (laughs) Well, that is what we're here for is to get people to check things off their list. And we're very excited to talk to you about the movie that you're discussing this week. So it is the last week of Spooktober. Sorry. The last week of Spooktober, Bride of Spooktober, and what a short, sweet sequel it was. Andy, would this be the 90-minute sequel of your dreams? I wonder why it's a 90-minute sequel. I wonder I wonder what mad lads did uh, a six-hour episode on James Bond, even though no one likes James Bond. Not anymore. We should have called it Spooktober Kills. <laughs> Next year, maybe. Next year. So this week, Melissa cancels hotels, not because of the pandemic. Sam visits an alternate universe where Nine Inch Nails doesn't exist. Andy watches two, count them, two movies, Overachiever this week, Andy. And I never watch TV again. That's right. This will be the last episode of Monkey Off My Backlog because Tessa never watches another movie or TV. And... Tessa's never done any books or anything else. No, this, it actually TV. just becomes a book-only podcast. <laughs> Wait, but is there a horror movie? Have one of those. Wait, is this a, is there a horror movie where like books kill you? Yeah, Fahrenheit 451, 1984. Come on, Tessa. No, no, no. There's that episode of the Twilight Zone. All the time oh, in the world, yeah, the where the where world. books metaphorically kill him because he wants to read them, and then he breaks his glasses, and there are no other glasses at all anywhere. At all, ever. I haven't actually seen that episode, but... (laughs) And yet you know the punchline. All right, let's go ahead and dive right in to what Melissa did Wait, wait, wait. Do you think that's a joke? Do you think that's funny that, like, the man who wants to read gets his glasses broken and there's nothing else? Tessa, that that's not a punchline. That's a tragedy. No, it's... it's, No, it's a punchline because I've never seen the episode... So I don't know how they justify the entire premise of the thing, which only works if there are literally no glasses anywhere else on the face of the earth, nor hey, is there the technology hey, Sam. to to learn how to make them. Sam, he gets uh, a dirty bomb gets dropped while he's in a secret underground library. Okay. So well, yeah, but leave. like the point still stands is that like he could find other glasses or I don't know, like find the books that are large print that are made for people who can't see small print. Like there's a lot of there's a lot of holes in this. How yes, in his glasses in... get destroyed, but not his face. Under and and there's not going to be any spare reading glasses in the underground bunker, Andy. Right. Really? And in, ni- really? in 1950, you think they have large text prints? You think that they were just uh, available and willing to cope with the fact that people were getting older and their eyes were getting bad? Right. And that That's they why had- they would have reading glasses. You guys are really preying on my insecurities about, you know, dying from blindness in an apocalypse situation. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. But anyway, Tessa, that's not a punchline. It's a tragedy. It's not a joke. It is if you haven't seen the Futurama sketch about it. All the tragedies are (laughs) punchlines. You're like the person who laughs at the end of Romeo and Juliet, aren't you? Okay, he was like in love with a girl. Like gonna marry her. And then the next day he's like, never mind. I'm gonna kill myself over this girl. It's true. It's called being a teenager. (laughs) Adolescence is rough, y'all. All right, so, Melissa, you watched The Shining this week. Tell us a bit about that. Yes, so The Shining, of course, directed by Stanley Kruvik, uh, based upon a novel by Stephen King starring Jack Nicholson, Shelley Duvall, and young Danny Lloyd. I really loved this movie, and I know that it's kind of about countless things because I've seen The Room 237 documentary like years before I ever even thought about watching The Shining. Um, 
And then for me, this movie was really just about like the audacity of man. And I don't mean like man masculinity. I mean like humanity. Um, and so it was a really fun time kind of getting the brain wheels going on that idea. And then the sound design was super cool. I didn't realize that the Shining score was something that I was missing in my life. So did you know what this film was about before you saw it? Since you'd, I mean, I feel like The Shining has like a pretty large pop culture footprint and you'd seen this documentary before. Yes. So I basically knew, I mean, yeah, I think that I basically did know everything about it. Like I knew what The Shining was in terms of like the magic. And I knew that the movie was about Jack Torrance um, getting cabin fever, for lack of a better term, and, you know, going crazy. And I knew that there was like the twist of him having always been in the hotel. But I thought that that was going to be like more like sci-fi. I thought that we were going to get like I don't know why I thought this, but I kind of thought that we were going to get like very distinct answers about like what happened in the Overlook Hotel. And that doesn't really that's not really how it pans out. But I think it's better that way because then you get Dr. Sleep. So which I also loved and watched. I was going to ask you if you'd seen Dr. Sleep or if you had plans to watch Dr. Sleep. I hadn't seen it before. Um but when I when we talked about being on this episode and I was like, oh, I should do The Shining because I've never seen it and it's spooky. And then my mind was immediately like, oh, and then you can watch Dr. Sleep because I'm really into Mike Flanagan also, mostly because of the Netflix stuff. So it was just a full circle watch things. There is one sequence in The Shining that is all the pop culture absorbing and knowing what happens in the world did not prepare me for a scene with a bear suit that's just very quickly and just so confusing. For why? <laughs> why is that there? Um, and there was another one. So when Jack is in like the party in the gold room, a woman walks by with a red handprint on her ass. And it's like, why is that there? Kubrick's last movie that he made completely by himself, because I'm not talking about AI. That's a whole different thing. But the last movie he made, Eyes Wide Shut, is really a stealth sequel to The Shining in the ways that you two just described. That movie's on my watch list, so I'm probably going to watch it pretty soon now. Like, <laughs> because of random imagery and orgies? Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, no. Yeah, All right. That's it. All right. That's fair. That's fair. Have you seen the footage of Jack Nicholson trying to stay in character while he axes down the door and because Kubrick is a uh, method director he actually has a real door that's like a full solid pine door and which means that the uh, one it's really hard to cut an axe through it and two it takes a little while to take it off its hinges and put a new one on and and Nicholson has to like sit there kind of walking around trying to stay in character like killer 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 like while everyone else uh or the horrifying things that uh, Kubrick did to uh, Shelley Duvall to get her amazing performance. Yeah, that that's like the one thing. I loved this movie. I'm glad I saw it. But it feels bad to have enjoyed it so much because of what he did to her. But I mean, like contextually within the movie, I, I just don't understand how Kubrick did not see the parallels between him and Jack Torrance while he was making this movie. Like that's kind of mind blowing to me. And also made me want to rewatch the 2020 movie Black Bear. I don't know if you guys have seen that. It is on my list. I love Aubrey Plaza. It is so good. It is also, well, it is so good. Asterix, some people hate it. Um, <laughs> but it's also about like writer's block and, you know, the audacity of filmmakers manipulating women. So. This seems like a good place to say, I mean, like many of the things we watch or read on this podcast, a lot of them are sort of, like we said, like very culturally, like people know about them, but we all have like these little blind spots. Why did it take you so long to see The Shining? I was scared. (laughs) My interest in horror has kind of ebbed and flowed throughout my life um we will actually talk about later on this podcast episode the very first horror movie i ever saw and 
then when you get into like the mid 2000s and it's like saw hostile the rob zombie halloweens that shit traumatized me and i was like oh actually i hate horror there's nothing in this genre for me and it took me a really long time to figure out how to separate what horror i really really enjoyed and what horror i absolutely could not sit through <laughs> so what how would you characterize the horror of the shining it, like it's definitely more psychological the stuff that's scary isn't necessarily the imagery the stuff that's scary is like thinking about humanity like devolving into this place where this stuff happens and it keeps happening and the imprints that it's leaving on people and places and that type of thing it's not like the blood coming out of the elevators is an incredible visual but like it's not giving me nightmares, you know what I mean? But like in a Saw movie, it's not the storyline that's making me think and that's freaking me out. It's like the imagery and that gets burned in my brain and then I'm traumatized. So really quickly for somebody who maybe is like you before you saw this movie and maybe is aware of it but doesn't really know what it's about, do you want to give us like a really quick summary of the premise? Yeah, Jack Torrance is... Um, a writer, ex-professor who needs a job that he can focus on his writing. So he drags his wife and child to this hotel to isolate them for the winter so that he can be the caretaker and work on his book and ignore them. And it does not go well for anybody. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a pretty good summary. I, I have to say, though, as someone who's like writing a dissertation right now, like I would love to be distracted by a bunch of ghosts. Like I'm just like, <laughs> oh, yeah, like I would rather do anything than be writing this. <laughs> like, Well, and it seems like because you have goodness in your soul that like these ghosts would probably be fine to you. It doesn't seem like this would happen if you went and stayed at the Overlook <laughs> Hotel. But I guess you just don't know until it's too late if you are the type of person to get consumed by this. Well, and of <laughs> And of course, this is based on a novel by Stephen King, where he's like processing his own issues with like alcoholism and drug use and and writer's block. So like very famously, very famously, Kubrick and King did not get along and King hates this adaptation of his work. But I think that the film is almost more well known than King's novel. Does that seem right to everyone? I haven't actually read the novel. It, it seems right to me. Are you saying that this movie, which was nominated for a Razzie, by the way, Kubrick was nominated for a Razzie for this film because it was so panned when it came out. Uh, you're, you're, you're saying that it's better than the Stephen King novel? Or it's better known? I, I'm saying it's better known, not that it's better. Okay, Andy, mm. here's a question. Which mm -hmm. one is the worst movie? The Shining or mm -hmm. Popeye? First of all, Popeye, directed by Robert Altman, is yes. an amazing film because it has Robin Williams in it. This movie does not have Robin Williams in it. Do you see how this works, Sam? Yes. Although, I, I would point out that the song from Popeye is, is better used in Punch Drunk Love than the movie in which it exists. I've I've actually never seen Popeye. I just know Robin Williams is in it, and it's, it's directed by Robin Williams. It's Altman. bad. It's terrible. It's bad, and it's bad, and it's terrible. But back to the the, the only connection is, of course, Shelley Duvall. Yeah, which I feel like was the unsaid thing uh... here. Uh, for a minute, I actually took me a minute. I was like, wait, why? Are I thought it was just like a bad movie. I was like, there's so many she of them. You picked Popeye. <laughs> she also does sing the song. I I actually I just thought it was uh, the same year and probably also nominated for a Razzie. <laughs> No, no, no. She plays olive oil. and But here's the thing, though. So uh, Stephen King wrote, I think it was the early 80s, uh, a nonfiction book. So this is before on writing, but it's called Dance Macabre. And, and, and what he talks about in the book is the difference between terror and horror. And I've got a very poorly boiled down over 300 pages of writing. Horror is when you see the thing. And the problem with horror, according to Stephen King, is when you see the thing, you will also see the zipper, you know, on the suit. And so he talks about how terror is when you never see it head on. You see it out of the corner of your eye, and it's much more scary. 
So being horrified and being terrorized are two different things. And so one of the things that Kubrick does when he adapts The Shining is adds those those horror elements that weren't so much in The Shining, which could be why he hated that movie, but also because Kubrick was a monster of a person. So that might have had something to do with it. Actually, uh, back to Dr. Sleep. First of all, uh, Jacob Tremblay did a wonderful job in his like one little scene. Yeah, I read an article about how he traumatized all the actors. Right, they, by just like, being like... Rebecca Ferguson like could not keep character because she was like, I'm feeling protective over this child. Right, and he's like, no, 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 do it, do it. Come on, hurt me. Kill me. What I always thought was interesting about Dr. Sleep is the ways in which they import imagery from The Shining without... I like was worried that they were going to like kind of retell The Shining or just sort of capitalize on like the pop culture impact of that film without actually saying anything new. And I really appreciated how they imported imagery without without doing that. Like they built something that was completely different out of that. But I wanted to bring up Dr. Sleep because of Mike Flanagan and to tie it to an episode from a few weeks ago, the comic I covered Something is Killing the Children, Mike Flanagan is creating a show for Netflix based on that comic, uh, which is going to be like a darker Stranger Things. So that'll be fun. That'll be really cool. So, Melissa, what do you think? Anything else you want to say about The Shining? What do you think about the difference between terror and horror? Are you going to watch the uh, 1995 uh, TV miniseries to compare them? The one that Stephen King worked with? Probably not. Stephen King's relationship with adaptations of his work isn't really that interesting to me. I I don't know. Like, Stephen King is great, but I'm not super attached to him. And, like, the way that he hated this movie is, like, all fine and good. But, like, I've seen other stuff that you made, and, like, that stuff really isn't good either. So I just don't know why you got so mad. What, what, What have you seen? Like, I don't really like it. Um... Remember that Johnny Depp movie, Secret Window? Yes. That basically has like the same climax as The Shining. It was such (laughs) a bad movie. (laughs) Like Red Rum or Shooter. Just, I guess, pick which word you want to. You know, Stephen King's like, I made my own Shining because the one that everybody liked, I don't like because it's different than mine. Like, yeah, that's just not super interesting to me. Yeah, that, that is totally fair. Anything else about The Shining, Melissa? I really just want a print of the shot with Wendy talking to the child psychologist and her cigarettes burning down to ash. And there's just like a tower of ash hanging out on her cigarette because her cigarette and life is just balanced on a knife edge. And she is just (laughs) oblivious to all of it for, you know, whatever reason and probably a million reasons. Like it is such a good shot and I want it hanging in my house. (laughs) It's so hard, like you said, because Shelley Duvall gives an amazing performance. Like, I think that she gives a better performance than Jack Nicholson does, who obviously Jack Nicholson, this is like one of his most well-known roles. And yet, like, it's hard to like enjoy her performance because you know that like she basically was traumatized in order to give that Mm -hmm. performance. And so it's like the cycle of like, this is one of her best works, but also like she should have had to go through that in order to like give this performance. Yeah, absolutely. And thinking about, like, she is not well now, so it's just really complicated, like, thinking about this movie and thinking about her. But yeah, that shot, that's probably the shot that, like, stays with me most about this movie. Probably also because I was, like, I had, like, a lot of empathy for her and her character going into it because of what I know about the movie. All right, so we ask this of every guest the first time that they're on Monkey Off My Backlog. What is your pop culture productivity strategy? Like, are you team list? Are you team chaos? Do you have, like, Netflix cues that go on forever? Like, what's your method for organizing your to-view or to-read lists? So I'm definitely pro-lists in both pop culture and life at large. I have lists upon lists for everything. Pop culture wise, I like to watch things that are like connected to each other. So like The Shining and Dr. Sleep, I recently watched. Or when you said that you guys were going to be watching The Ring, like 
I watched that and then we watched The Grudge, you know, early 2000s, like formative horror movie experiences. Um, And I also like to watch a lot of things like I pick TV and movies based on cast. So I will go through a phase of watching like a lot of movies that like one single person is in or like currently I'm rewatching some Denis Villeneuve movies and some Wes Anderson movies because they both have movies with Timothy Chalamet coming out later this year. So that's kind of how I structure like what I'm watching. (laughs) I mean, I don't think that's a bad structure. Like, what are some of your favorite series or connections that you've made between films? So this is like kind of cheating because Tessa, you are involved in this, but pairing like Bit and Jennifer's Body for a movie choice is one of my favorites because it's like women eat people. Yeah, And so I just watch these two things now. Yeah. Well, I also feel like sometimes it's vibes, too. Like, those movies have, like, very similar vibes mm-hmm. in some ways. So, yeah, I totally get that. Wait, do you do you also do counter vibe, though? Like, you, you, you know, if you watch something that is just a downer, do you go for another downer? Or do you go for, uh, you know, oh, I, I need something to fix this hole in my heart that uh, Schindler's List has left in me and give me all these business uh, advice? Oh, God. Well, Shinner's List is on my backlog, so that's embarrassing for me. Yeah, I do like, I'll do counter. Like, when I did spooky movies at my friends on Friday night, and afterwards we watched like six episodes of New Girl, (laughs) which is just like complete opposite vibe. Hey, Andy, I got a double feature for you. Okay. Schindler's List, Mm -hmm. Taken. Mm -hmm. All right, moving on. (laughs) So, Tessa, you watched Ringu. I did not watch Ringu. What 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 do you mean? You 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 of course watched the original one, right? And not and not the uh director of Pirates of the Caribbean's movie The Ring? I watched The Ring 2002. Yeah, okay, okay. Uh so now I can't ask you if you've seen if you were going to watch uh, Juan the Grudge versus The Ring, which is an actual Japanese movie. Well, we were going to watch Juan and then for for my monkey, but we I decided not to. Hmm. There are now I think 3 movies in that franchise of The Ring versus The Grudge, but in Japan, so it's Juan versus Ringu. But but only the movie that Tess is going to talk about today stars the guy from Virgin River. That's true. Wait, wait, wait. Is is this not the one with Sarah Michelle Gellar? No, I'm serious. No, that's that's, that's the, the grudge. grudge. That's, that's the, the grudge. grudge. Okay, okay. Sorry, I I like legitimately did not know for a second. Okay, Naomi Watts, baby. I I yeah, only know Nicole that Gore Verbinski directed it. Slash, like okay, so Nicole Kidman, uh, Nicole Kidman, Naomi Watts, and Miranda Otto all sort of look alike to me. So like, even though I know who they are as individuals, like sometimes I'm just like. Oh, yeah, it's this one. This is the one that's in this movie. <laughs> They're all, like, Australian, blonde actors. I don't know how I forgot this, but when I was re-watching The Ring this week, I was like, holy shit, Naomi Watts is so pretty. Like, yeah, she's she got, like, a little baby face in that movie. Gorgeous. Yeah. It, it also took me a minute to recognize Amber Tamblin from yeah. the first scene, which I think is a direct callback to Scream. Even though Amber Tamblin is not was not as famous in 2002 as Drew Barrymore was when Scream came out, I really felt a lot of similar vibes between the first scene of The Ring and the first scene of Scream. Have you seen Scary Movie 3? I have not. I've not seen any of the scary movies. Oh my god. Okay, so... My hot take is that Scary Movie 3 is the best one, but it's yes, really it just is. because I... Thank you! I had seen all the movies they were spook, spoofing when I saw Scary Movie 3, so I was like, okay, this is funny, because I hadn't seen like Scream when I saw the original Scary Movies. But when I was rewatching The Ring, I was like, I, I can't take any of this seriously anymore because I have seen Scary Movie 3 like 400 times, but I started that because the Amber Tamblyn character is spoofed by Pamela Anderson in Scary Movie 3, and it is just wild (laughs) (laughs) yeah no i and i think we should definitely talk about like movies like the ring that get like parodied so much that they don't like i I guess i could talk about it now so like one of the things about this movie that made me avoid it for so long is that this the, the ring directly falls into a genre of horror that scares the crap out of me which is supernatural horror we talked about this last week 
when we talked about stuff that really scares us and like part of it's because my upbringing like even though I like I don't believe any of that stuff anymore like part of my unconscious is like it's real like people are gonna come get you so like you know I it took me a while to watch this movie but part of the problem with watching this movie now is that like and I'm not gonna say what it is because I don't want to spoil anyone who somehow managed to not know what this imagery is like but the central image of the film is like so like parodied and ubiquitous now that it's almost not terrifying anymore like like I I mean I'll say it here we'll probably edit it out but like her climbing out of the the tv Mm -hmm. like I already knew that was gonna happen like I was like waiting for it to happen so I I feel like I would have been more scared of this in 2002 when it originally came out you know like if you're sitting there watching it in a theater it's like reading Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde like that shit was terrifying, like, when that that novel came out, right? Like, people were scared of the idea of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde because it was new and shocking, but now it's been part of pop culture consciousness for so long that it's just, like, not scary anymore. And so I kind of wonder about films like this where I'm like, okay, like, this is still really good, and I'm going to talk about how it's good, but it's not as scary as I think it would have been if I'd watched it in 2002. Why would you sully yourself with a dirty remake, Tessa, a, a remake and an Americanization at that. I think people generally like this adaptation, so. <laughs> they really do. Uh. <laughs> this is, as you've mentioned, this is an adaptation of Hideo Nakata's Ringu, which is also an adaptation. So even if I'd watched that one, it would have been an adaptation. An adaptation of what, Tessa? Koji Suzuki's novel of a the same book, name. Andy. Yeah, which is apparently like completely different than this. I just want to say really quickly, going back to the in the theater experience, a friend of mine and I went to go see Eyes Wide Shut. And I just remember after we finished watching the movie, she turned around and looked at me and was like, what the f***? (laughs) Same friend. We went to go see the Blair Witch Project in the theater. Right? No, everybody knows the deal with that movie now. But we didn't when it first came out. And I can, yes, it is much more terrifying when you see a movie like that in the theater when the thing has not been spoiled yet. That's why I don't like it. That's why I don't like it. (laughs) Every time the Blair Witch comes up, I I have to talk about this. Uh, Melissa, are you aware of how the Blair Witch was originally marketed? Yes. Everybody thought that it was like real found footage. Right, right, right. Because they would uh, go to movie places and return copies of the Blair Witch without any credits on him. I didn't know that to that extent. That's pretty so, cool, though. So, so stop and think of how, how terrifying that would be if you're like, oh, I rented uh, the best of Scooby-Doo, and um, you know, it's the Blair Witch without any credits, and the actors went into hiding. Okay, hold on. If if I got a copy of Sco- Best of Scooby-Doo and it was the Blair Witch Project, I feel like that would actually You're be pissed. a really enjoyable movie experience. Unless I you just... got that shit for your kids. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's fair, but I don't have kids, so. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. But I would just be like, wait, when's Scooby-Doo showing up? Like, when is the gang showing up? Like, I, I feel like I would enjoy that, actually. But also, you should watch the Scooby-Doo Project, which was a... 10-minute short Cartoon Network aired at, like, midnight on Halloween back in the 90s. One time, it's available online, and it's a parody of The Blair Witch, but it's Scooby-Doo, and it has a little bit of Adult Swim uh, humor to it, and it's it's just so bizarre. Um, Andy, do you do you know what The Blair Witch is based on? Uh, yes, Robert Eggers' movie, The Witch. <laughs> no. No. It's it's based on the Bell Witch, which is is that is that the Taco an, Bell sandwich? Nope, it's an urban legend Terrifying. from just outside Knoxville, Tennessee. Where did I see the Blair Witch Project? That's right. I guess I forgot to mention that context. That's always fun when it's like in the place where you are. So to answer your original question, Andy, I watched this adaptation because the internet pretty much agrees that this is better than the original, which is unheard of. Like, Honestly, usually, it probably is. You, like, I, usually, I, I'm usually very much against this idea, this trend, especially that's been going for the last 20 years, where it's like, you know, there's there's a movie made in a country, 
in Asia, usually Japan or Korea or China, and we have to immediately remake it in the U.S. because U.S. audiences don't like reading subtitles. I, on, philosophically, I disagree with that. I really don't want that. I haven't even seen Squid Game yet, and I'm just like, please don't make a remake of it. Like, I just want to watch it in the original. So usually I am very much pro watching the original film in its original context, and I'm, I'm still probably going to watch Ringu at some point. Like, I'm, I'm actually kind of excited to watch it based on this. However, most people actually say, like, no, like, this is the adaptation that actually manages to do something that the original did not. And so that is why I watched it, to answer your question. <laughs> and I think that, like, early 2000s, it was different because it would have been a lot harder to get your hands on these originals. So I think that, they like, in the early 2000s, these like American adaptations get a little bit more forgiveness than like, if you make like an American parasite, I hope nobody watches that. Yeah, exactly. Sorry for my language. Well, well they, they are making an American parasite though. Yeah. And I hope nobody watches it. But, but like Bong Joon-ho is writing it and Mark Ruffalo and. Yeah. And like a miniseries is a little bit different than like a remake of the movie. Like that. It's like, Oh, here's a better example. The American remake of train to Busan. Let's all yes. just agree that that shitty oh, and should have made. Wait, why, that's why, why? Oh no! Please don't. Um, or, or the American remake of a movie we'll be covering in two weeks called Your Name. Yeah. See. Yeah, it's it's not a great trend, but for those of you who are like me and know about The Ring but don't exactly know what it's about, at least me before I watched this film. So the short version of the summary is, after the mysterious death of her niece, investigative journalist Rachel Keller, played by Naomi Watts, discovers that several high school students died at exactly the same time, seven days after watching a videotape that urban legend claims is cursed. Rachel watches the tape herself, a series of bizarre and graphic images, and then receives a phone call that simply says, seven days. As the clock counts down, Rachel begins to experience supernatural phenomena as she tries to unravel the mystery of the tape. After her son watches the tape, she becomes even more desperate to figure out who the little girl from the tape is and why she is tormenting them. I think that's the best summary mm-hmm. of the premise of this. I like how, like, around the third, uh, like, third of the way through the movie, when she finally watches the tape, we start getting this countdown, like, day one which I really appreciate, until other people start watching it. So, like, she shows it the very next day to her ex-boyfriend, the father of her child, who, as we mentioned, is played by Martin Henderson, who is more well-known, I think, for his Virgin River, which is, like, a completely different (laughs) thing. So I was laughing about that for the majority of this movie. But she shows it to him, and then her son watches it a couple days later. And so I was telling Sam, I really wish that, like, they had started adding like different countdown timers. Like they had been like day three for, for Rachel, but it's day two for, uh, you know, uh, is it, I don't remember. Is his name Nathan? No, that's his, that's his name in Grey's Anatomy. And I don't remember what his name is, but like. So wait, wait, what you want is the movie time code where they have four different, uh, four different streams going on at the same time. Yeah, like, I wanted it to be, like, like I was, because like I kept having to do math, like, in the movie, where I'm like, wait, okay, so this is, like, day four for her, but he watched it the day after, so it's day three for, you know, like, it was just, like, too much thinking about when people had seen this tape. But I, I did want to point out a little bit of trivia here. This was originally offered to David Lynch. Could you imagine if David Lynch had directed this movie? I've never seen a Lynchian film. Not even the one that he did with Naomi Watts? No. Which is not this movie. He actually, 99, I think. Um, it's Mulholland, Mulholland Yeah. Hey, Tessa, I have a question for you. This movie has things like landlines and cathode ray tube televisions <laughs> and VHS. Does it, like... Does anybody actually remember or know what VHS is? Is that even scary? Grandpa, what are those things? So I'm in a weird, I'm like in this weird like elder millennial situation or like not even elder. I'm like no. mid, I'm like mid millennial situation where like VHS and cassette tapes and landlines, they all existed in my childhood. Like I remember them. But definitely by 2002, they were on their way out. So it is a little odd that this movie, like, depends so much on these things. 
They also, this movie also has prominent use of the StarTac cell phone, which my dad and my uncle were obsessed with and like refused to give up way past the time that they should have. So yeah, that was fun. And I mean, I think that's why this movie, especially the first scene, reminded me of Scream. Like the fact that Amber Tamblyn is like talking on like an actual landline landline phone. Like at one point, Sam was even like, what's your favorite scary movie, Sydney? Like, you know, it just kind of has like those vibes to it. And like the fact that the cursed videotape is just like, it's like what you were saying, Andy. Like there's no identifying information on it. It's just like this random VHS like tape. Like it doesn't even have a case. It's just sort of in the middle of these VHS tapes, which again, 2002, maybe I could believe that a resort cabin place in the middle of nowhere would still have VHS tapes to rent. I believe it's VHS. VHS tapes to rent. I've heard it both ways. But yeah, it does feel weirdly anachronistic in some ways, but I will say there's really beautiful color work in this film. Like everything is this like vibrant blue or gray like shading and it's very minimalist which i guess is like an homage to the original which i really appreciate i really like it when films like this don't try to have too much stuff going on with the the imagery it why are you looking at was it, like it was that? it megan we talked about the tinting with yes the tinting yeah tinting yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah this was around the same time this was around the same time but but it goes in a very different direction than like Fast and Furious or yeah like I feel like the early 2000s is when people really discovered tinting as a concept in in the big name Hollywood films and this was and then David Fincher never looked back yeah and then they never looked back it was (laughs) never the same no I have a question here because Naomi Watch is is apparently the main character you'd say yes she's the protagonist okay 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 The, the, the protagonist sure uh how how often was it during this time that a uh, female protagonist in a horror movie wasn't just simply the final girl. Not often. I mean, horror does have a preoccupation with women, especially women with as victims or, yeah, as the final girl of some kind. But she's like, she plays this very intelligently. Like, she has this very... I, I like it when people in horror films get what's going on faster than not. Like, I'm... I don't like it when you're halfway through a horror film and people are still like in denial about what's happening. Like she gets on board fairly quickly after seeing the videotape. And I really appreciated that. Like she, she really plays this character as someone who is used to doing like investigative journalism, who is the sort of person who looks through files. Like I I believed all of that about this character, even though it's a pretty straightforward character. Like she doesn't have a lot of complexity to her, but I still felt like I understood who she was in the way that she played it. I, I will say that her child is so strange in this film. Like, I was really expecting this to be like a Rosemary's Baby situation. Like, I was like, what, like, what, were your neighbors like really uncomfortably interested in how you <laughs> conceived this child? Like, he comes across as like the weird Sixth Sense, like Antichrist type of child. Like, he has this connection with the little girl in the video that's never quite explained. Um, Sam had the best joke about it. Sam, do you want to repeat what you said when we found out what this child's name was? Yeah, so here's the thing. Tessa's reference point that she just mentioned was not my reference point because to me, this is clearly an like this is an omen situation. You need to mm-hmm. shave that kid's head and see if there are numbers on it. And then I remembered that his name is Aiden, which is like one missing letter and rearranged, you actually get Damien. So like yeah. That's a stretch. That's a stretch. I, it is a stretch, but but it just it just reinforces the idea that Tessa really needs to see the omen. Okay. It's all for you, Damien. Also and Scary Movie Three, if you yes. want to yes. see that kid get Absolutely. hit by a bus. <laughs> Resolution is so great. Also, Aiden might actually be like the Gen Z equivalent of Damon. Like or the millennial millennials named a lot of their kids Aiden, I feel like. And a lot of those Aidens grew up to be little shits. Actors anyway. who played Littlefinger. <laughs> <laughs> I liked this movie a lot. I do recommend it. It's unexplained horror, which is one of my favorites. It's kind of like The Shining in that way. You don't necessarily get a whole lot of... Like, this film tries to explain it, but then you realize that the explanation is wrong about halfway through. And I, I really enjoyed that part. 
Um, the ending, without spoiling it, also brings up an ethical conundrum that I'm not used to seeing at the end of most horror films. Like, I really enjoyed that ending. Like, I was like, oh, okay. Like, is, is what they're doing here right? Is it wrong? What are the implications? I, I enjoyed that a lot. I do have two content warnings, slight spoilers, so you can skip one minute ahead in this recording if you don't want to hear anything more spoilery about this. I didn't like the adoption stuff in this. Um, I feel like that's mm-hmm. really overused. It wasn't as bad as I've seen in some other films, but like, come on, stop using disfigured villains in your horror and stop using adoption. That's just a thing. Also, I hate animal violence in any context, and there is brief animal violence in this. So just throwing that out there in case you were concerned. Sam, a world without nine inch nails, huh? Is this like black beer for music instead of technology? First, I really like the concept of a black mirror for music. I even have a pitch. What if Oingo Boingo had become a huge pop culture phenomenon? Do you know what would have happened? No. Danny Elfman would have never scored a film. Yeah. I don't want to live in that world. Exactly. See, black mirror (laughs) for music. It would be perfect. And of course, that's a really good connection because, of course, Trent Reznor much like Danny Elfman, has ascended beyond his, his uh, initial music career to become one of the most popular music composers in Hollywood, not unlike uh, that Radiohead dude um, who's also done Tom it York. as well. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm thinking of uh, Johnny Greenwood, who was okay. like the composer for the BBC and has done a lot of stuff too. But yeah. See, so- I was thinking, I was on horror movie track. I was thinking of Suspiria. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. But like Danny Elfman paved the way for all of this. So, but no, it's actually, I actually watched an episode of Black Mirror. My goal for this year was to watch every remaining episode of Black Mirror that I hadn't seen yet, but I failed, but I watched this one. So you watched the episode Rachel Jack and Ashley 2, which is almost the length of a film. It's a pretty long episode. What is the basic premise of this episode? At... 67 minutes, it is four minutes shorter than The Invisible Man, the other film that I watched. This one is is written by Charlie Brooker. It came out as part of season or series five back in 2019. It is about a young girl whose mother died a couple of years ago and lives with her father, who is literally obsessed with building a better mousetrap, and her sister, who is obsessed with the Pixies and Sonic Youth and whatever else her mom listened to. But, but Rachel, the, 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 the young girl, the sister, is obsessed with Ashley O, a pop star like Hannah Montana, I, I guess. Having seen exactly zero Hannah Montana, this is what I imagine. Played by Miley Cyrus. The whole deal here is Rachel, the main character, is unpopular, and she idolizes Ashley O, who is unable to climb out of her role as a pop star. But everything changes when Ashley's manager slash aunt, there's you another adoption storyline, Tessa, comes up with the idea for Ashley 2, an AI based on Ashley O. So these episodes are supposed to have some tangible connections to real life. What's the connection here? Well, because Charlie Brooker is obsessed with technology, not music. Where's the hook? Where's the technology? So... He was fascinated by the thing where we're turning dead musicians into holograms, horrified by it. And so he creates this entire narrative that is about that, but it's also about agency of women who are pop stars. You can connect this to what's happening with Britney right now. You can connect it to what was happening with Kesha in 2019 and before. You can connect it with Miley herself. You can also connect this with Joe Jackson, who terrorized his children, especially Michael. You could compare it to Ike Turner, who terrorized his wife, Tina. You could also compare this to actual ghost who haunts Andy, Phil Spector. Uh, There's an article uh, in The Guardian back when this episode came out that compares this uh, episode to similar themes from Yesterday, Fox Lux, and A Star is Born. So there's a lot of technology connections here a lot of connections to music it's really it's interesting it's really interesting 
So how did they get Miley to be in on this joke? I mean, this character is very much, I actually asked you during this episode, was this character written for Miley Cyrus? And it was. So, so it was, so Brooker wrote it with Miley Cyrus in mind. And it's kind of hard to believe that that's not true because of the whole Hannah Montana thing. And so they decided, well, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. So they sent it to her and she was immediately, yes. Yes, she wanted to do this. She thought it was cool. How did they get Trent Reznor to be in on the joke? Because, yeah, there's a lot of Nine Inch Nails hooks in this. Samples. Oh, yeah. So there are a couple of answers to this. The first one is Atticus Ross, his music composing partner, had already scored an ep from season four of Black Mirror. So Trent Reznor was always already well aware of what was happening here. And so he thought it was a fun idea. He was all about it. What the, so the gimmick is that one of Ashley O's biggest songs is called I'm on a Roll, which sounds a lot like Head Like a Hole, down to the uh, getting what you deserve line. But other lines are changed. Instead of bow down before the one you serve, it's replaced with stoked on ambition and verve. It's a real Billy Mac love actually situation. It's it's just super great. He has said, Trent Reznor has said, I think that they're wonderfully absurd, the songs. It's just stupid. It's such a great kind of juxtaposition. Again, in the context of that story, I thought it was really funny. I see why people don't get it, but I think if they understand the context, then it makes sense. And if you don't get it, well, sorry. <laughs> and And Brooker said... I'd suggest that Trent Reznor could have had an alternate universe career as a bubblegum bubble composer, to which Trent Reznor responded, that's my takeaway too. What was I thinking? And the last thing I want to say about that, it's really funny. So Taylor Swift's fans have like codified this idea of eras, like the, the TS1 era, the TS3 era, the TS9 era, you know, all that stuff. Trent Reznor was doing that a long time ago. All of his albums and singles are called Halos. So, for example, Pretty Hate Machine is Halo 2. With Teeth, which has the other song that's rewritten in this episode, the song is Right Where It Belongs, which becomes Right Where I Belong, that's, with Teeth, is Halo 19. There are more connections to Trent Reznor and pop music than you think, and that's really the... I just found this episode just so... Wonderful, and I loved it so much. So I guess you liked it. You thought it was good? Yeah, apparently nobody else did. Because this app is rotten on Rotten Tomatoes. And I know what you're thinking. That happens. Yeah, it is the lowest rated episode of Black Mirror on Rotten Tomatoes. Because people say it's predictable. And it's too optimistic. I don't know why people hate good things. Black Mirror people are kind of weird. Yeah. I mean, this episode... In their opinions. I was just going to say, like, I've only seen, like, three or four episodes of Black Mirror, and this is one of them, and it's my favorite, probably because it does have kind of an optimistic tone. Like, the other ones that I've seen, um, oh, who was it? Maybe Michael C. Hall. Like, it was so depressing. I was like, I don't know how people watch a whole entire episode of this. Like, right. it's scary in a way that I think that I might not recover my good mood. <laughs> yeah. So our favorite episode of Black Mirror is San Junipero, which is the most optimistic. It is downright utopian. And but this this the commentary in this may be kind of obvious, but that doesn't mean it's not worth being said. There are lots of these issues around AI because Ashley, too, is an, an assistant but one who is like sandboxed. She's not connected to the internet. So, you know, she's only like a, a scan of, um, of, of Ashley O's mind, but she still does that advice, like helping thing that a digital assistant would do. And there's all this stuff with music, but I, I want to leave you all with one thing because I found out after we watched this episode and after I was getting ready for the episode, I found out that there was another song that they wrote for this episode that they didn't use. It is a song called Flirt, which is a rewriting of the Nine Inch Nails song, Hurt. And I thought it was a real shame 
that we didn't know what that song sounded like. So I took a crack at it. And without giving away too much of the spoiler of the episode, it's important that this that these songs can be read two ways. They can be read in the original depressing way that Trent Reznor would have wanted, or it can be read in the up-tempo, different-key, Hannah Montana way. The other grand rule is, of course, one line has to be exactly the same or very similar and follow the same rhyme scheme. So, I submit for your approval. What have I become? You're all my friends. No matter where I go each day, we're the trend. You'll see me at the mall. My best sparkly shirt. I still wear the crown. I am such a flirt. That's it. That's it. Call Johnny Cash. Dig him up. Make a make a make a giant hologram of him. Okay. So, Sam, this didn't. You know, this didn't encourage an argument between you and Tessa. Uh, go on. Why would it have? Oh, because uh, Open Mike Eagle, amazing hip hop artist, made a song called "Black Mirror Episode Ruined My Marriage." Ah. Seriously? Well, hmm? I mean, like you can't you can't have song titles determine your life, Andy. After all, I am fairly sure that Daft Punk has played at neither of our houses. Um. But uh, <laughs> Melissa Melissa said something and it didn't get caught. So, oh, I said seriously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. About oh. the Black Mirror episode ruining my marriage song. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it it is it is actually really amazing. Uh, that entire album is called uh, Anime Trauma and Divorce, and it is a really good hip hop album about uh about well trauma and divorce and anime, and uh, it is fantastic. I ugh. Man, I'm just going to do another non sequitur. I I don't want to engage with that, so I'm just going to end with another non sequitur song title. Once again, last night, a DJ did not, in fact, save my life. I keep waiting, but it hasn't happened yet. (laughs) Andy. Well, as Green Day would say, kill the DJ. (sighs) I wish you were 2,000 light years away right now. I am. You truly are, even though you're a millennial and it's about Generation X, an American idiot. What did you watch this week? I watched Goodnight Mommy and Malignant. Uh, we're going to talk about Goodnight Mommy first. What is Goodnight Mommy? Uh, it's something a kid says when they are going to go to bed. That's a great premise. I imagine it was good. Goodnight Mommy is an Austrian film that involves two twins whose mother comes back from some kind of very, very traumatic surgery, uh, probably involving facial reconstruction uh, due to the bandages on her face. And they start to get the idea that maybe this person who came back isn't actually their mother. Oh. It's not good. The twins uh, are suspect that the mom is not their mother. I feel like that's like a legit fear when you're a child that like your parents gonna come home and it's gonna be someone else. Like, yeah, like a replacement yeah, es- parent. I feel like I had those with, nightmares. Right, right, especially with uh, you, you know, their mother has a completely bandaged face. Right, there's there's some real genuine terror there, uh, and. I was just going to say this. This does remind me a lot of a movie we watched um, uh, last year, at the end of last year. And and there was a teenage daughter in that movie, and her dad comes home, but he's different. He doesn't have bandages. They've done this weird like facial surgery, so he still looks like John Travolta, but he's acting like Nicholas. Oh, that's right. It's Face Off. That happened in Face Off. Okay, but it does really sound like a good premise, right? But you said it was bad. Here's the thing. The trailers show this could be possibly supernatural in origin. We don't know. Maybe this is the imagination of a child. Uh, I'm just going to go ahead and say, anything that's supernatural is a dream, and it's dumb. This is a slow, contemplated movie that has a twist, 
But that twist is so obvious that when they reveal it, my reaction was, oh, oh, like we weren't supposed to know that already? It is, it is so... That is the worst kind of twist. It's, it's Shyamalanian, if you will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it, is, it is so dumb. The, 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 the twist is just so obvious. It is also not scary. Like, 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 it could be scary if you were, would just take the idea, like, okay, yeah, these kids don't think this person is their mother. Awesome. Except it's not even shot really like a horror movie. It's, it, it's shot like a drama, but there's not enough character development, and there's just so much sitting in silence, and, like, the kids, uh, at one point, they, they put, like, a you know, a baby monitor under their, uh, their mother's bed to like listen and they hear some weird noises and and that's it. But it's like them sitting in there for silence, just, just waiting. Uh, again, the, 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 the twist is just so stupid and so obvious. It just lacks anything. And it, wow, this was such a disappointment. I was looking forward to this movie. Okay. So this, this other movie, Malignant, how did that go? All right, Malignant, directed by James Wan, came out, I think, like a month ago, is awesome. It is fantastic. It's wonderful. It is exactly what I wanted in a horror movie. Go on. What's what's the premise? All right, the premise is this uh, this woman, uh, played by Annabelle Wallace, starts having these waking dreams in her house. Uh, something is going wrong and uh she starts seeing all these grisly murders. So like like that's the basic premise that isn't what this movie is though. This movie is a love letter to Sam Raimi. Oh, more people should write love letters to Sam Raimi. And, like <laughs> Why? He has Bruce Campbell. He also has and I can't think of his name. J Jonah Jameson. Oh, uh JK Simmons. Yeah, he also ha- he also has J.K. Simmons, yeah, and um, and Topher. Right, right. Well, Topher. Uh, Topher, who? Spider Man. That was Tobey Maguire, Sam. No, Topher, great. Yeah. Venom. Yes. The first Venom. That's right. Tom Hardy. <laughs> Before Venom became buff and gay, we had Topher Grace, <laughs> who was. Neither of, Neither those, of things. those things. Topher Grace, the guy from uh, from that '70s show, or from that '90s show coming soon to Netflix. I from Win a Date with Tad Hamilton. Yes. <laughs> look, 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 look. I'm a big Spider-Man fan. Okay, from if when he, he played, played Venom, Venom I would know about it. <laughs> All right. If if and if Topher Grace played Venom, I would know about it. But unfortunately, we've never gotten a Spider-Man versus Venom movie, and I don't know what you're talking about. It actually, Andy. I was going to ask you later if you wanted to do an ep uh, before the Spider-Man movie in December, where we we talk about the the Raimi trilogy, the uh, the the current Spider-Man series, and into the Spider-Verse. And I believe that's all the movies that have been made about Spider-Man. But I wondered if you wanted I'm, to. Do I'm an confused here. Raimi trilogy. Yes, the last movie you said had like a supernatural element that was solely based around dreaming and wasn't good. This kind of sounds like that, but better. Yes. Yes. This is, this is that, but better, but also not that at all. This is evil dead plus dark man plus, um, drag me to hell plus simple plan. This is straight up a love letter to Sam Raimi type movies. So, Low budget movies you make in the woods with your friends? Sure, sure. Uh, yeah, uh, Drag Me to Hell was famously made for a low budget with your friends. Um, I just want to point out too, you brought us all the way back around to Liam Neeson. Good for you, Andy. Yeah, no. Uh, uh seriously, th- this movie has like the the weird campiness of of Evil Dead, and then it goes straight into just a oh, we're we're just a normal haunted house horror movie. And then it gets crazier. It uh, it is really funny if you know if you know what jokes it's making. Uh, there's a running 
kind of gag of using where is my mind. <laughs> you, you you know, when something shocking happens, it plays where is my mind, but it almost never gets to the lyrics. So unless you know the song and can recognize how on the nose this choice is, like you're you're not gonna get it. it. It's got some great puppet work. It's it's got the dumbest twist, but it knows it's the dumbest twist, and it takes it so seriously. This movie is just a fantastic example of what uh, '90s horror uh, and thrillers were. Uh, it has some action sequences that come out of nowhere that are just hilarious. Um, yeah, yeah, Malignant's awesome. Watch it. Uh, it is, is this the Fast and is Furious. Is this a movie that someone would enjoy if they haven't seen a lot of those '90s or Sam Raimi's films? Like we talked about, Scary Movie, and how like Melissa didn't enjoy the first two because she hadn't seen the movies they were based on. Is this something you should only watch if you are a fan of Sam Raimi, or is it accessible for people who haven't seen those? Films? So I I think this movie falls in more of the Scream type parodies where it it works as you know making fun of the tropes and acknowledging them, but it's also a sincere attempt at a, uh, at a uh, standalone horror movie. And as long as you, yeah, it's, it's awesome. That, that That's really all I can say is, is it's great. It's, uh, it's so much fun. I, I just I, watch it. Uh, seriously. It, it's great. Um, James Wan did saw, which, um, you know, that whatever, um, but he also did the Insidious movies and Aquaman and Fast and Furious 7, and this is much more of those. Uh, a lot of the reviews that I'm reading are calling it very gory. I, I don't really think it's very gory at all, um, uh, and and the parts that are gory are so over the top and funny, they're, they're not taken seriously. This is Fast and Furious, but a 90s horror movie, and it is a ride. I might watch this today. It leaves HBO Max today. Yeah. The day that we are recording this podcast. And I've been trying to get like friends together or maybe try to go see it in the theater. Um, But like I have to see this movie and I don't want to wait until it comes back on HBO Max because it won't be spooky season and I don't want to pay $20 to rent it. So it's going to have to be today. Yeah. Melissa, seriously, watch it. Uh, it It is so weird. I totally get why people don't like it. Because they're probably expecting an insidious or a um, uh, conjuring from James Wan, and it is not that at all. But at the same time, it kind of is, and that's the best part. Every time someone says more things about this movie, I'm like, I'm in. I'm gonna love it. Like the weirder and more like delightfully bizarre something can be, the more I'm like, I love this. Watch it and let me know what you think, because it's it's it's, sure. it's a ride. All right. Unfortunately, with this episode. Spooktober, Bride of Spooktober is over. That's weird. It feels kind of short for a month. Three episodes? Yes, and even though Spooktober this year was only three weeks long, we saw No Time to Die this week, and I can assure you that the true horror lasted all month long. However, you have all year to think about whether our next Spooktober sequel will be Spooktober, Son of Spooktober, or Spooktober, Spooktober Kills. I think it's a very important distinction. But well, ne- next year it'll be Spooktober Ends. Yeah, there you go. Spooktober I'm, I'm ends. looking forward to uh, to getting to watch uh, those Halloween films. I'm skeptical. I am very deeply skeptical. Mm. I, I, I really enjoyed the uh the, the first remake in uh twenty eighteen. Me too. So. I am not convinced that they need um an additional trilogy and I'm not convinced that they're going to be able to convince me in Halloween kills that I'm going to need two more hours of this. <laughs> that is completely fair. But I do appreciate that Jamie Lee Curtis is getting paid all the money for yes. being a scream queen. Yes. I do appreciate all that. All the money. Yeah. But, however, even though Spooktober, Bride of Spooktober is over, I am still going to keep the scary adjacent vibes going next week when I watch Aliens. All right, where can people find us? Melissa, where can people find you online and in their headphones? 
Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Mellow Yellow, which has two L's and two O's. I'm also Mellow Yellow on Letterboxd if you want to creep on what movies I'm watching. I co-host the Wild Pretty Things podcast, which is a podcast about women in danger. Or you can find me watching Mad Men for the first time with a couple friends at Still Great Bob. Andy, where can people find you? You can find me online uh, on Twitter at Andy Noted. Sam? You can find me on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris nine. You can also find me in print or in ebook in the new collection from Bloomsbury, Pearl Jam and Philosophy. Cool. Yeah. Dr. Sam is a published author in a book. Again. Again. You can Two find books. me on Twitter at Suela Tessa. Suela is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. You can also find me on my Terry Pratchett reread podcast, Nanny Ogg's Book Club, with our friend of the podcast, Nigel. You can find that at Nanny's Book Club on Twitter. You can also listen to that podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Send us your thoughts about the pop culture we talked about today, what you've crossed off your list lately, what you'd like for us to talk about on future episodes, or anything else that comes to mind. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at monkeybacklog. Email us at monkeyoffmybacklog at gmail.com. Visit us on our website at www.monkeyoffmybacklog.com. We got lots of great Spooktober content coming out there, including... Sam's famous Halloween playlist in two parts and Andy's famous list of horror movies for people who don't like horror movies. Our theme song is Hot Shot by Scott Holmes and can be found on scottholmesmusic.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on Spotify, Stitcher, and Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get you uh, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Get that monkey off your back.